Good morning again. Last week, uh, if you were here, uh, recall I said we were going to spend three weeks uh, looking at the Trinity. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, or Pentecost, where we emphasized heavily on the gift of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when he descended, who birthed the church. Next week, as I don't know if it was promised, but we will finally close out Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, by observing the Trinity within Paul's letter to Philippi. Today, we are simply going to just focus on the triune God himself and what it means for God to be three persons in one nature. And what day is it more befitting for that than Trinity Sunday? I'll read a quote here from gotquestionsthink.com. Trinity Sunday is the first Sunday after Pentecost to honor the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On Trinity Sunday, the Christian church ponders with joy, with joy and thanksgiving, what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done to accomplish the salvation of sinful humanity. It is brought to remembrance how Christians should respond to the love God has shown us, praising Him and giving Him glory. For full disclosure, the reason I said that's from God Questions is until uh, this last week, I had never actually heard of Trinity Sunday. Uh, that's something new for me, so if that's something new for you, we're in the same camp. I've n- never heard of it. Uh, I, and I just copy-pasted that explanation from the website. Yet, how perfect is it that this week's sermon matches an ancient tradition from the 10th century? That's how long that goes back to, at least the church in the West. Speaking of antiquity, whenever we bring up the Trinity, it's always good to begin by quoting Augustine. One very well-known church history professor, when asked in an interview who would be his go-to read on the Trinity, in other words, if he wanted to read about the Trinity and get the most truest, clearest information, well, I don't know about clearest, but who would he read? What, what one book would he pick? What author would he pick? And he said, Augustine, without a shadow of a doubt. And the interviewer asked him about Thomas Aquinas, who was a brilliant theologian. The professor said, I haven't read anything in Aquinas regarding the Trinity that I have not read in Augustine. If you know anything about Aquinas, that's a very bold statement. And whether or not it's it's completely accurate, I don't know, but it's still very revealing about the amount of work and lengths Augustine wrote about regarding the Trinity. So we'll start with one of my favorite quotes by Augustine. In our quest... It, it, this is a quote regarding a, our quest to understand the triune God. It's in his book titled, The Trinity. And he writes, Nowhere else is a mistake more dangerous, a search more laborious, nor a discovery more profitable. Nowhere else is a mistake more dangerous. The doctrine of the Trinity is a first-tier issue, right? Because the Christian faith itself is Trinitarian in its origin. 
In fact, if you remember from last week, the gospel itself is Trinitarian. We, Jordan will preach from Ephesians 1 soon. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit gives life and seals us. I mean, it's most likely why if you've ever looked at Cornerstone's statement of faith, our very first article is confessing the triune God. If you're, in it, if you're unfamiliar with what a statement of faith is, it's a document that a local church puts together so that those who desire to become members or enter fellowship in with that church or into fellowship with that church, they must adhere to the statement of faith, those specific doctrines. And it helps you know what church you're going to and what they believe. So you could check typically on websites and things like that. But typically a church will have a statement of faith. And also typically a church's statement of faith are first-tier issues. They're first-tier doctrines. Which, When it's a first-tier doctrine, it means if those doctrines are removed or even one of them were removed from that statement, you would no longer have the tenets, the pillars of the Christian faith. Nowhere else is a mistake more dangerous. Augustine lived in a time, and that time still continues, but throughout centuries, people who rejected that God is three in one have been labeled as heretics and excommunicated from the Christian church because they taught contrary to the Trinity. Implication, what we believe matters. As A.W. Tozer famously said, what, oh, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he implies that what, what we believe about God will influence and shape every aspect of our lives. And therefore, we must be a people who continually seek to know and understand our God through our intellect, right? I had a conversation with one of you last week, and it says, love your God with your, doesn't just say heart, doesn't just say strength, doesn't just say with all your soul, right? With your mind. We must come to understand and seek and pursue our God with our mind as well as our heart. And we'll see today in Acts 17 that the time for ignorance regarding who God is, Paul says, well, Luke says, and Paul preaches, that time of ignorance regarding who God is, it's over. And therefore, God desires all people to repent. Acts 17, 16 through 31. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? 
Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Agapus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father God. There's, there's no sermon that we do not entrust ourselves to you as, as we proclaim it, Lord, to divinely work through your word and your spirit, God. And there's something very intimidating about preaching about you as three persons in one nature, God. Something that I guess makes us tremble at preaching about the Trinity. Lord, help me to not err today. Lord, God, and I entrust this this text and this sermon to you, Lord, that you would create worshipers, Lord, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do that today. Amen. Do you understand why God wants all people to repent? From that ignorance about knowing who God is, if we, if we look back to verse 23, 
Paul says, let me read it. I, lo- I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He says, you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. They had an inscription dedicated to the unknown God, and they worshipped it. But, But Paul's point is, look, right? You cannot properly worship who you do not know. God does not accept that worship. It reminds me of, if you're familiar with Jen Wilkins, I love this comment. She said, the heart cannot worship what the mind does not know. And I like to alter that just a bit, even though I'm so fond of that statement. The heart cannot worship who the mind does not know. What we know is important. If you remember the words of Jesus to the woman at the well, he said, God desires us to worship in spirit and truth. We must know who we worship. And therefore, Paul looks to the Athenians and says, look, today I'm going to tell you the truth about who God is so that your offer of worship will be accepted. What God has concealed in the past, he says, he's now revealed through his son, Jesus. That he is raised from the dead, who will one day come and judge all peoples. What was concealed has now been revealed, mainly that God is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are all one God. And therefore, since God has made that known, Paul tells the Athenians, which is application for us, all peoples are without excuse. So in other words, God's self-revelation of himself from this text requires us to pursue him, to get to know him, to find out who he truly is. And that knowledge of who he is, is meant to result in worship, right? Knowledge isn't complete unless it's fulfilled by worship. Or our knowledge of God is not complete until it results in worship. For the record, I know trying to understand the Trinity is hard. It's very hard. That's why Augustine says, nothing is more laborious. It's tough. I want to encourage you by saying that, ah, because learning something, so it may may be very, very difficult. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, nor should you be discouraged to try. And it also doesn't mean that you can't. Hopefully today... You will leave with more knowledge of the Trinity than you previously had. And if you already knew or know everything that's going to be taught, hopefully you will leave with a heart more inclined to worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Augustine said, it it may be the most dangerous and it may be the most laborious, but he closes that quote with, there's nothing else more profitable, 
nothing. Which means the most rewarding and satisfying object of your worship will never exceed the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Along with today's passage from Acts 17, I'm going to work from the first article from our statement of faith. It's a basic Trinitarian confession. Today's goal is to elaborate on that confession to help understand the Trinitarian doctrine for us. The first article begins with our article one. We believe that God is one in nature and three in his persons. Specifically, we confess that there is only one God. Loved ones, we're monotheists. We're not tritheists. We're not polytheists. We believe in one God. Sorry, the confession doesn't say that, but let me, sorry. Specifically, we confess that there is only one God. But in the unity of the Godhead, there are three eternal and co-equal persons who are the same in substance. To break that down some, God's nature is what he is. And God's three persons are who he is. We're going to walk that out today. That's why we say God is one nature but three in persons, or God is three persons in one nature. Hopefully you get the point or you understand that. If not, that, that's okay. The, the rest of the sermon is going to just be exploring those two specific doctrines of the Trinity. God is one in nature. God is three in persons. We'll start with God is one in nature. We believe that God is one in nature. You may be more familiar with the Trinity being described as God is three persons in one being. Personally, and that's how I grew up, hearing it, and personally, I think that term being is a bit outdated, and I didn't exactly find it helpful, and I, and I find it more helpful to say substance, God is one substance, God is one nature, or God is one essence. So when we say God is one in nature, we are speaking about what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have in common. That's their essence. It's what, that God's essence is, it's what makes God, God. God's nature, his essence, his substance is the stuff that makes him who he is. So when we say his being, his nature, his substance, we're simply referring to God's attributes. God is one in his attributes. Yet, God doesn't just possess attributes. God's nature is his attributes. In other words, the Bible teaches, and we'll see today, that, that God doesn't just have power. God is all-powerful. God doesn't just have knowledge. God is all-knowing. God doesn't just have love. You're familiar with this scripture. God is love. God doesn't just have wisdom. God is all-wise. God is holy. God is just. And God is good. Those attributes and the ones we'll discuss have been determined we, by his self-revelation from the scriptures. 
In other words, where do we come up with those? Where did the church come up with God is holy, God is love, God is just, God is power? Where, where did we come up with that? From the self, his own self-revelation through divine scripture. Which makes it a good time to point out that, love, we must never create God in our own image. Instead, we must allow God to reveal who he is through divine revelation, i.e. the Bible, i.e. the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. Orthodoxy is not interested in what we'd like to think God is like. Instead, biblical fidelity is only interested in the presentation of God from the biblical data. Here's some biblical data. Acts 17. Look at verse 24 and 25. He gives us a lot of data. Paul, as he's preaching, and Luke writes, as Paul preaches, Paul gives us a lot of data about God that we can draw from just from these two verses alone. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Just from that, Paul proclaims there's one God. He is unlike anything in creation. Because he alone is the creator of the entire universe. He is eternal. Which means there never was one moment in eternity when God did not exist. He has no beginning. He has no end. As the Psalms continually proclaim throughout them, God is from everlasting to everlasting. And Paul says that this God is also self-existent and self-sufficient. By self-existent, the church means and has confessed that God has life in himself. He was not brought into existence by anything or anyone. God simply is. By self-sufficient, we mean and the church has confessed that God does not rely on anyone or anything to accomplish his will. He may choose to use his creation, but he isn't reliant or dependent on it. Mordecai tells that to Esther, right? Look, you may not go before the king. He's going to choose someone. Someone's going to go. He doesn't need us. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need our counsel pertaining to how we think he should be running the universe. He doesn't require that. As Psalm 115 says, and for good reason, and maybe a reminder, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Our response is to submit to that reality when we don't like what he's doing in our life. And if we looked at more biblical data outside of Paul's sermons to determine what God is, we would see that God is immutable, which means his nature 
does not and cannot change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change? As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. So he has confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. You see, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God wants us to know that his promises are true, that he will deliver on all of his promises. And the reason to believe that is because he has an unchanging nature. And when, when we fully grasp that, our faith will be rooted in his irreversible or permanent nature. God does not change. He cannot change. His unchanging nature is meant, his self-revelation of his unchanging nature in these passages just alone is meant to convey that it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot act against who he is. God is good. He cannot act against that. God is love. He cannot act against that. God is just. He cannot be unjust. That is what the scriptures testify about God. The issue isn't, that's hard to believe, but that is what the issue is. The issue isn't the self-revelation is hard to understand. The issue is that it's hard to believe that that could be true. But the implication of it is God can be trusted. Not partially, completely. Which means there's not one promise in the entire word of God that God will not deliver on. Not one. I know there's a children's song we've sang. Maybe it is called God Keeps His Promises. And if you're in Christ this morning, that should come as a comfort to you that His nature, His character, His attributes do not change. Because God has said... In Romans 8.1, if you're in Christ, there is no longer condemnation for you. Your sins are forgiven, and he will never forsake you. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been Thou forever will be. Where do you think the hymn writer came up with that verse? By God's immutability, he does not change. God is incorporeal. It's a long word. Which means God is not made up of parts. His attributes are not portions of what he is. In other words, God is not a pie chart that is 10% 10% love, 10% immutability, 10% justice, 10%, that is, he's not made of parts. God is 100% love. God is 100% holy. God is 100% good, 100% just. He cannot become 
more loving. He cannot become more holier. He cannot become more powerful. He cannot become wiser than he is because God is infinite. He has no boundaries, no limits. He is not bound by time or space. (laughs) In everything that he is, it's all infinite. And therefore, he cannot grow in any of his attributes because there's no potential to grow in infinity. There's implication. Because there's no potential for God to grow in his love, God's love for you will never lessen, nor will it ever be able to grow stronger. Because God loves you with an infinite love that is already at full capacity. Therefore, when we wonder, does God love me? We must not look to our, cir- our circumstance or our situation to answer if God loves us. Instead, we should remind ourselves that the infinite essence of love, of his love, is unable to change toward us because God's immutability his unchanging nature means his unchanging nature means that his love will not lessen and it will not grow because it is already infinite towards you his knowledge his wisdom are infinite as well his knowledge contains every bit of information that has ever occurred and ever will happen There is never a time, nor will there ever be a time, where God said, I don't know. As Steve Lawson said, I love this, there's never been a time where God looked out into the future to learn something. God doesn't learn. He doesn't need informed. He knows every component to past, present, and future. And he's not bound by past, present, and future. Another implication. If God's knowledge is infinite, not bound by time, and our knowledge as humans is finite, limited, bound only by what we currently know, then it should come as no surprise When it's difficult to fathom how God is currently using affliction for our good. And when something happens in our life that brings discomfort, suffering, whatever it may be. And we say, I have no idea how God could possibly be using this for my good. What could he be doing? Of course you have no idea how God could be using that for good because his knowledge is infinite and ours is not. His knowledge is endless. Ours is limited. How could we possibly fathom how he's using suffering for our good and for his glory? We can't. And don't be discouraged when you can because it is by faith that we trust what is unseen. Due to his infinite knowledge combined with his immeasurable power, he is present across the entire universe. 
There's not one square inch throughout any galaxy that he did not bring into existence or that he is not currently sustaining by the power of his word and will. With all that in the background, we come back to A.W. Tozer's quote who said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if we apply Tozer's quote to the attributes of God, then whatever we believe about God is going to influence the way that we think and the way that we live. So you see, we, we don't just learn about God and then hope to stumble across uh, you know, or, or, or search for some application that's just more practical than finding out who God is. It, loved one, learning about God is the application that teaches us how to live. It, the, the knowledge of our God is what will transform the way that we think and the way that we act. And I think that maybe one of the primary reasons Augustine said there's not a discovery more profitable. Of course, his nature and what God is is not the only discovery that we need to make about God. We also need to learn who is God. For the record, full disclosure, this sermon might be five minutes longer than a normal one. Sorry. If we didn't, we would just never get into the Philippian sermon. So don't worry. I, I have shortened it, but we, we have to. I just didn't feel right to leave us with just God is one. Because we worship one God in Trinity. The Athanasian Creed begins with we worship one God in Trinity, in unity. I'm sorry, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Three persons. Just like the term being, God is three persons and one being, I, I, found, as I found that difficult. I also find uh, that the word's persons. It's just as hard to understand. I mean, it maybe it made more sense, you know, centuries ago, or, or maybe I just didn't study the Trinity soon enough, but I, I think by the terminology sometimes is where we get most confused. I mean, what comes to mind when you think about the word person? The image of a human being? The idea of a bodily presence? Just a person? I mean, something along those lines. We probably all have different ideas formulated in our head when we hear the word person. The top of my list in understanding the Trinity or the difficulty of at the top of my list was, was this word. What does it mean God is three persons? For years, this bothered me. 
I'd confess it. I'd say it. I'm like, yeah, I believe it. But I had not a clue what it meant. It was confusing. So I'm like, okay, we got, we got to start from scratch. I had to go all the way back to research when Christians began using this term. As well as what did it even mean? And the answer was all the way back in 150 A.D. by a man named Tertullian. Tertullian, one of our most known church fathers, is also considered the father of Latin theology. Now that's important to know because he's the one that coined the term in Latin, the Trinity. Tertullian, a great defender of the Trinity, fought to defend biblical Trinitarian doctrine, teachings about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, against heresies. And he did it by explaining the Trinity with two words, persona and substantia. Persona was used to describe an actor in a play, but it also became the word used for an individual capable of having property or substance. And substantia was the word used for substance, nature, or essence, or being. Therefore, Tertullian developed this Latin grammar to explain that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct personas in one substantia, or in English, three persons in one substance, in one nature. Individuals capable of having property of substance. Now the question, so if, if their substance is the same, there's one God, they don't, the, their essence is not divided, that is the same, but then what distinguishes them? And this is where we get the three. And the best part of what, distinction, what distinguishes the Trinity is it's only one thing. There's only one thing that distinguishes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just one. That's it. And it's their eternal relations to one another. Maybe you know them as eternal relations of origin. If not, we're going to go there for a second. If this feels too meaty or beefy right now, I asked for your prayer request last week before I preached this. So you're without excuse. I, I asked you. I mean, we... It's hard, man, you know, it's, uh, it takes more than 40 weeks to study the Trinity than just 40 minutes, you know, or it takes 40 weeks, not just 40 minutes, it's tough, it's hard to understand. We're going to try to break this down a little bit, okay? Here's their eternal relations of origin, the father, right? These are relations, a father to a son, a son to a father, and the spirit to the father and the son. The father is unbegotten. For the Father, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, all things are from him. He is unbegotten. The Father being unbegotten means he is not generated, he is not begotten, he does not proceed from anyone, and he is not a son. He is the Father who is the source of all things, such is light and life, and all things come from Him. The Son, 
The second person of the Trinity is eternally begotten from the Father. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory and the glory of the only begotten Son. Don't worry, I'm going to walk that word out in a second. Who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the Father's bosom. He has made him known. That's Jesus. John 3, 16, you know this one. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 18, two verses later, the one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has already been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's something important about begotten, isn't there? 1 John 4, 9. By this love of God is revealed in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we may live through him. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. To beget, even if you look at Genesis 5 and Adam beget Seth and Seth beget and continue, to beget means to generate a child. That is why Jesus is called the Son, because his sonship is the manner in which he exists in the essence of God. But we also have to qualify that with eternally. Jesus, born of a virgin, but the Son of God eternally exists. So we have to remember that he's eternally begotten. He was not made or created. That's what Arius got wrong, right? And he was deemed a heretic. That's what the Council of Nicaea was about. And if, and if your mind is like, what does eternally begotten, the eternal generation look like then? Augustine just said, it's just better if your mind doesn't try to understand it. Because if it's eternal... It had no starting point. It just always was. Jesus always has been the Son. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. It's the Trinity, you know? It's good. All right. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Unless you're in the East. The Western Church has confessed this. The East has not. I didn't know if you'd be here today, so... (laughs) Yes, sir. John 15, 26. Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Comes from the Father, and Christ is sending him. John 20, 22. Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from Jesus. In Matthew 10, 20, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of the Father. In Philippians 1, 19, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And in Romans 8, 9, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Christ. I align with the church in the West. The Spirit is not called a son because he is not eternally generated from the Father. He is not begotten by the Father. Instead, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and he proceeds as Spirit or as the breath of God. That's a lot. These are the eternal relations of origin. and That's their only distinction. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. 
from the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's it. That's the only distinction. If you just get that part right, you're like, you got it. You got their distinction covered. They're one God, and their distinction is the Father's begotten, the Son's eternally begotten from the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Many Christians throughout the ages have sought to upgrade Trinitarian terminology in order to be more precise and accessible. And advancing all the way from the 2nd century from Tertullian to the 16th and John Calvin. John Calvin defined persona as a subsistence in the essence of God. Which meant that the three persons of the Trinity are distinguished by the mode or manner of their individual existence in that one nature. The individual existence in which they subsist, in which they exist, in the one nature is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they eternally exist in this one nature. I know it's a mouthful. I know it's a lot. And so we're going to end there this week. Next week, we're going to examine how these three work according to their individual personas to their individual persons and their eternal relations. If you read the rest of our statement of faith in Article 1, it says they have distinct roles from one another. Next week, we're going to demonstrate why and show that their distinct roles are appropriated to their distinct relations. So just to reiterate on a more pastoral note as we end, I hope it wasn't too luxury, but um, what are you going to do? I know for some that these could be a lot of new terms. And as I stated earlier, 40 minutes is not going to be enough to expand much of our understanding to the mystery of the triune God. But it is God that we're talking about. And Paul says we are without excuse for getting to know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to know that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't care if you're a scholar. I care if you love God and pursue the three persons in one nature. That's the point of this sermon. It's to worship Him as He is. And if it's difficult, if you're like, I have no idea what He just said for the last 40 minutes, It should not come as any surprise that the infinite, incomprehensible God is hard to be grasped by finite humans such as you and me. And even though we can't comprehend the triune God because he is transcendent, he is superior, he is unmatched, and he is unequaled, we can still get to know him. We can still see the glory that he has chosen to reveal to us because he is also a personal God who has revealed himself regarding his persons and his nature. And the Apostle Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, we must respond to that revelation that God has given. The glorious truth concerning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should be learned so that he may be known, because he alone is worthy of our worship. I know a majority of us are Christians now. 
if there aren't any who have ever met God, and you want to meet this God, the true God, as Paul says, the true creator of the heavens and the earth, who makes all things, who gives life and breath and existence to everything in every galaxy, that journey to this begins at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, where you acknowledge to him that you are not him, that you are a sinner in need of your sins to be forgiven. And somehow, because he is unmeasurable love, by his grace and mercy, he looks upon our helpless estate and forgives our sins if we just ask him and turn from them and say, God, I don't know you, but I want to know you. And that comes through being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and being reborn through the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that, that there would be a, a desire to, to, to know more about you. God, that, that for those who may not know you, that there would be a desire to come to that foot of the cross and repent and believe that there is a God above who transcends everything in this universe, who is the creator and unlike anything in creation. And that their heart would, would miraculously be turned to wanting to get to know this God, to wanting to get to know you to grow in their knowledge, to be able to grow in worship, to grow in, in, in their Christian walk, Lord, to become disciples of Jesus Christ, Lord. God, make us true worshipers of the triune God. Lord, you are worthy, and we need your help to do this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.